got the I juice. Got the juice. Hello and welcome to the Never Heard of It podcast. I'm Craig Moorhead. And I'm Sean Harwell, and this is the podcast where we talk about the movies that have fallen through our cracks. This is our first podcast of 2017. Wanted to say Happy New Year to all you never, never heard heads. <laughs> I think they're called never nerds. It's a new year, but uh, the, the podcast is, is going to be pretty much the same deal. Pretty old. If, if you're just joining us for the first time, we have a, a website called neverheardpodcast.com we're also on twitter at neverpodcast we're on facebook look us up on facebook and so we can all talk and be friends digitally that's right you can also find us on instagram and youtube should be able to google both of those but if not there are links on our website so that's always a good place to start for our first episode of the year We've done something a little different. We talked about uh, we talked about it a little bit before. We're watching a movie that we have heard of that really most people have probably heard of. Certainly, it's on a AFI list. Uh, won five Oscars. It's a very popular uh, movie, or or at least it was a well received movie. And neither Sean nor I had seen it, so we decided that'd be a good way to see and kind of check off the list. That's right. So if you looked at podcasts online, say on iTunes, and saw something called Never Heard of It, and then the words In the Heat of the Night beside that, <laughs> you, you might just be checking in to see what kind of absolute morons we are. And I assure right. you, we are absolute morons. But uh, yeah, yes. in this case, I think you know we'll try to do this every now and then. It's always nice to see something really good. And uh, the, the odds were, <laughs> were strong that In the Heat of the Night would deliver. And... Uh, you know, for my money, it, it definitely did, Craig. The movie was released in 1967, so it's been around for almost 50 years now, I guess. Crazy. Gosh. Right? It'll be 50 years this coming August. Directed by Norman Jewison. Screenplay by Sterling Siliphant, whose name I, I just, I love. One of the best. One of the best. Starring Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, Warren Oates, Lee Grant. There are actually a lot of great faces in here. Really good. Especially if you've if you watched your share of movies, I think you'll see a lot of uh, recognizable folks. Who's the guy? Anthony James, who's the guy who works in the diner. Yep. Man, his face, you've, you've just seen him a lot, most likely. <laughs> He's got like the biggest Adam's apple I've ever seen. Did you notice that? <laughs> he, yes, yes. The world's largest Adam's apple. Uh, music is by Quincy Jones. Cinematography by Haskell Wexler, which is fantastic. Uh, edited by Hal Ashby. Come on, yeah, he won an Oscar for this. That's great. Yeah, uh, really a strong uh, group of people they brought together to make that movie. And uh, I'd like to point out there's a book out there called Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris. I'll be reading a little bit of it, some certain things to give our, give our talk some uh, context. But it's a fantastic book about the five... Nominees for Best Picture that year and kind of what they went through to, to get there. And uh, Well, I, I don't want to get ahead of, of what maybe you were going to read, but as I understand it, In the Heat of the Night, which did win Best Picture in 1967, it did not actually receive its Oscar when it was supposed to or when they were supposed to have the Oscars. It was delayed because of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., which yeah. I'm guessing is in that book. Yeah, yes, it is. And it's it's very interesting because... Sidney's uh, journey to making that movie and everything that he went through on that movie, it builds to this point. Like it, it just sort of underlines everything that happens in the story. And then they get to this point where the Oscars are going to be happening 
Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated four days before it's supposed to air. Mm. Sidney Poitier and uh, th- there were there were a whole uh, cadre of, of actors and, and filmmakers who said, if you hold this on the 8th, we're not going to go to the Oscars. I see. And and they and they yeah they really had to figure out they they said basically if you if you have this before Martin Luther King is in the ground then we're not going to be there. Gosh, that's fascinating. So, and and it's just yeah and, and that's the thing and it's something I thought about a lot while I was watching it because obviously we are not really far beyond the events that happen in the story even though things are not necessarily this way in our day to day lives in general. Yeah. You know, as a country, we're still not far beyond mm-hmm. what's what's happening there. And yet, I think there's a, something about this movie that has been a, has been diminished a little bit in, in terms of viewing by the thousands of very special episodes of TV that I've seen over time. <laughs> and and, you know, just basically this story handled, I don't know, too superficially or something. To imagine watching that movie in 1967 yeah. is, I think, completely different from, from how it is now. Well, yeah, one of the things I read was that Walter Murch, the producer, like more or less had to prove that the movie would, could still make money even if it didn't play in the South at all at the time of its open. Oh, yeah. nuts. I mean, that's just yeah, crazy. Totally. But also, I, I do wonder, I mean, to your point, obviously, this was then made into a, a TV show, a TV series. And mm-hmm. there's also an entire series of books that this character, Virgil Tibbs, the um, the character that Sidney Poitier plays, written by John Ball, who wrote the original book. There were also two sequels to this movie that I, I had no clue about. The They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which I knew that line. Yeah. And I think maybe was, maybe I knew that that was also a movie. I, I didn't connect right. it. <laughs> this is a direct sequel. Yeah. Uh, but then there's another one called The Organization. I'm really kind of curious to see... Because I understand that there were quite a few changes from the original novel that Sterling Siliphant made, but like just mm-hmm. looking around briefly, even on Amazon, it's like let me. I, I'm, I would love to read some of these books. Like this sounds really interesting, and like sure, there there's one where, where uh, the main murder takes place at a nudist colony in California. So seems quite oh, yes. different than um, <laughs> Old Sparta, Mississippi. Right. So the subject matter of the books, though, does it just it just follows. Virgil Tibbs? Yeah, he's he's. I mean, okay. I think it's it's ultimately like that a detective series. Yeah, um, originally okay. he was, I think, a detective in um, Pasadena in the novel, and then they, they've changed that right. to, to Philadelphia in the movie, and then I'm not sure beyond that. When did you read this this book that you're talking about, Pictures of, of the Revolution? I read this book, man, probably late last year. Okay, so relatively recently. Yeah. Okay. Prior to that, did you kind of have like a good understanding of what In the Heat of the Night was about? Yeah. Okay. I mean, enough. I knew about the television show because I remember a certain time of my life being confused (laughs) about the movie and the television show. And then, uh, and I think mainly because Rod Steiger and Carol O'Connor looked so much alike. They do. That I was that I was kind of like, is that the same thing? And then no, it's not the same. That's a show. And then so I remember as a kid, sort of weirdly, I was confused and then uh, i don't know educated myself on it for some reason mm-hmm. but yes I, I definitely understood that it was taking place in mississippi i didn't know virgil tibbs uh, by name but i knew that he was not welcome in the town uh, in general that was my idea and that he was a police officer there to investigate something gotcha that's that's as, that's as far as i knew 
I don't know what I had in my head. I, I swear to God, like it's at a certain point I had to know that this Virgil Tibbs character was a cop. But right. I think going into sitting down and actually watching the movie last night, I was thinking that the Poitier character was just like a resident in this town, that there huh. were race relations in this town that he was somehow a focal point of. And so, right. but I, I think regardless of that, the reveal in this movie that he is a police officer is is a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I, there's yes. something, it's so simple and mm-hmm. just graciously done and laid out there and, and perfect. Like if you want to go yeah. like watch something that's handled perfectly as far as how you get to that like inciting thing of a setup in probably, it was probably about 10 minutes in the movie, maybe not even that long. Yeah. Watch that. You know, he had every opportunity along the way to say, yeah. hey guys, not only did I not do this thing that you just picked me up for in this train station where I'm just waiting to catch a train at four o'clock in the morning, I'm a cop in Philadelphia. And he didn't. And like, it gives him so much power and like agency, I think, by that. Yeah. It's such, it is a great, great choice. I was visiting my mother. I came in on the 1235 from Brownsville. I was waiting to go out on the 405. Yeah. In the meanwhile, you just killed yourself a white man, just about the most important white man we got around here, and picked yourself up a couple of hundred dollars. I earned that money 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Colored can't earn that kind of money. Boy, hell, that's more than I make in a month. Now, where did you earn it? Philadelphia. Mississippi. Pennsylvania. Now, just what do you do up there in little old Pennsylvania, earn that kind of money? I'm a police officer. Yeah, I mean, that is, I was just waiting for the moment to happen because I, you know, I knew he was a cop. Yeah, but I will say I did watch the trailer today and it spoils everything. So (laughs) if anybody walked into the movie theater having seen that trailer, they already knew exactly that this guy was a cop. But man, that that I mean, I think it would have floored some people along with the the, uh, big scene where he he slaps Mr. Endicott, which is a great, great moment. And I think one that was not originally in the novel. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, that scene is definitely one of the scenes that is still powerful today. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so a part of this movie, though, is kind of about where Sidney Poitier was going into the movie. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to read, like, a short thing. But this is kind of about how, th- through the roles that he had leading up to this, he'd kind of become this character that was that just wasn't quite human. Yeah. You know, more of a, a standard bearer and something that could not be touched. So anyway... Hollywood needed an exceptional Negro in the 1950s, and Portier was perfect in the role. Aside from his talent and magnetism, he demonstrated a remarkable instinct for self-presentation. Without anyone to emulate, he knew exactly how much he could say publicly without jeopardizing his status in either black or white America. In the press, he walked a fine line almost unerringly. He was humble but never servile, concerned but uh, rarely intemperate, unwilling to pretend bigotry was anything other than an immense national problem, but optimistic that it would eventually give way. But as much as journalists like to point out his unique status to him, Portier didn't spend much time discussing the cost of that exceptionalism. He wouldn't let himself, couldn't let himself play villains. Hollywood would never allow him to play a character with real sexual passion, Mm -hmm. and the possibility that he might one day be able to compete with white actors for roles in which race would be factored out wasn't even worth discussing. 
so that that's just like a small tidbit of like where he was. Like he was becoming really frustrated with that fact. Well, and it's it's maybe worth pointing out that in the same year as in the Heat of the Night, he was also in To Sir With Love and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and mm-hmm. uh, was not nominated for an Oscar for any of those movies. And no. <laughs> yet, yeah. and yet counterparts were and won. You know, Rod Steiger yes. did for In the Heat of the Night. And then I think Catherine Hepburn did in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. A whole slew of actors nominated from that one and uh, not him. So... It's crazy because when I think of both of these movies, both of those movies, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night, I think of him. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's really interesting. And, and it must have been yeah. an incredibly difficult thing to kind of navigate. Yeah, especially for him at that time. It's almost like he can't play someone with flaws. I feel like he got yeah. much closer to that in, in, in The Heat of the Night, but there's still, even, even then, even in that movie... He, the, mo- the most he does that's wrong is lose his temper. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a, a bit closer to the end where Gillespie, played by Steiger, suggests that you know he's trying... Like The only reason he cares about solving the murder is, is to show him up or something like that. Yep. Yep. Like, like the, and that feels like the biggest suggestion of a real flaw that he's yeah, just a human being sure. who, you know... His ego-driven um, and, you know... Exactly. And I think he fought for that. Like, I think he fought for that yeah. idea. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting is, <laughs> saying all that, one of the things I actually, like, really noticed and loved about the performance was just, like, how economical he is. And so yeah. when, like, he's not doing anything, or when, they're, you know, his character isn't being required to, you know, speak or move... He doesn't do it. He just, he stands there in a way that like holds power. But then even like his movements, like there are times where it just feels like he's operating at a different mm-hmm. speed. And it's almost like I was going to say, it's, it is like, it's slightly robotic in a weird way. And, and yeah. I love that. I, I thought it was, it, it makes a really intense, interesting performance. But yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I, I think to an extent that the character itself has to be guarded because this guy is a very unforgiving and dangerous environment in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. So he's not letting that guard down, but also just like, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. Like it, it felt like something I'd never seen before in a lot of ways, you know, (laughs) like it's just, it's a different type of acting. That's really, really compelling. I thought definitely. And a great contrast to, to Steiger who's, you know, chewing gum at 30 miles per hour, you know? Oh Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like he is he is playing a, a just a southern slob. I mean, he can't even keep his hat on straight. He's absolutely the counterpart to Gillespie in in just about every way. You know, I read that uh I guess George C. Scott was maybe the first choice for that that role, which Oh, really? makes a kind of sense. Hmm. Yeah. At least thinking about like the pecking order of of names in Hollywood yeah, you time. Yeah, think about it. Yeah. I, I could, you can see that I think pretty easily. Yeah, uh, but I I think they I think they got lucky. I think they did. Yeah, that, that he wasn't because I I don't know Steiger is is uh, it's interesting like he can he can play it very big. Mm-hmm. He kind of seems, but but he he tends not to. I mean, he tends to to keep it as natural as he can. Like it didn't feel like he was you know chewing the scenery very much. No, um, even just like there was 
<laughs> there's a scene where uh, Poitiers' character Tibbs is is once again chased by uh, four white rednecks who are intent on mm-hmm. you know doing him harm or, or killing him, and they end up in like auto mechanic like shed garage or, garage, or something, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know we we see through the the editing that Chief Gillespie is is on his way, so you know it's only a matter of time before he gets there. But it does it feels like it takes a while for him to get there? And then when he yeah. does get there, he just kind of stands and watches for a second. And like I, I yeah. thought, you know, that's a good choice too. And I don't know, you know, because it just it does it sort of complicates the situation. By that point, we know that this guy cares about Tibbs to a degree, right? You know, and at least he's defending him to others in yes. this town, which is a very big thing for him to do. I mean, that's putting his his, yeah. his own neck out. But it still is like, okay, is there that other little part of him that, you know, maybe wants to see Tibbs at least get knocked down a peg before he then like, you know, saves the day? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But it was good. It was good. It was like it was a good choice and it, again, it felt like a uh, a smaller choice than say smacking on the gum or or some of the line deliveries. Sure. But I loved all that stuff. Even just the way like when Poitier tells uh, Gillespie his name for the first time, Virgil Tibbs, you know, and he's like Virgil, like the way that he like, yeah, like cackled and laughed and like just took in that name and sort of you know put him down just by yeah. you know repeating it. It was it was great. I really liked. It. I mean, this is really you know it's a unique delivery there for sure. Uh, I wonder it makes well, me think about like okay, like how did they write that exactly? Like it was to just say yeah. you know mockingly on the page or what? Well, you know that was something that that actually me knowing that he was a cop kind of ruined the moment, or or at least made the moment more confusing for me. Yeah, because I thought he was laughing because he knew that there was a Virgil Tibbs who was going to be in town who was a police officer. Or oh, something. okay. Like I didn't get it all, you know. Uh, at least up until that point, and then I think after that he explains that he was there to visit his mom and he was about to leave. Yeah. But I was like, oh, yeah, he's laughing because he knows this guy's a cop and they're going to be buddies. And then they weren't. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, that does make much more sense for the rest of the story. Yeah. But yeah. So I want to talk about that chase, though. So sure. the car chase. Yeah. At some point, Tibbs is, is driving around and, and uh, he's he's being chased by some guys in a, some old Plymouth with, you know, a rebel flag plate on the front. And, uh, <laughs> and they're just, you know, yeah, ramming into the back of his car and then... Uh, they chase him into that garage. You have uh, the the music over that was was funky uh, to the degree of almost trying to underscore it in a comic way. It seemed like, like it didn't feel like tense music of the era. I wrote the same thing actually in the very first scene where Warren Oates finds Tibbs at the station and frisks him. Music is kind of undercutting what I think would be like the natural tension of this. And then, yeah, it picked back up in the chasing. It was the same thing. And Quincy Jones did the music, right? I mean, I know he wrote the, yeah. the theme song. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's just, well, if you get Quincy, that's what you want. Um, or if it's it's yeah. more of a product of the, the time or not. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting choice. And that to me, is um i mean gosh that, that's one of the only things i can really kind of point at and say that feels dated and tonally i'm trying to figure out i mean 
I don't know, what was it just literally trying to underscore whatever comedy would be there as if it kind of made me feel like it was saying that the four guys in the car are a bunch of uh, ridiculous idiots. Yeah. And like that's sort of why this is funny. The same way they may be saying Sam is an idiot mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he's just, you know, he's he's going off half cocked. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. Th- those left me uh, kind of scratching my head a little bit. One other thing that I wanted to bring up about the the, the Poitier thing that I think is we talked and was in your book as well, but you know, just mm-hmm. talking again about the times in which this movie was made. You know, reading on IMDb that that he insisted that the movie was filmed in the North because of mm-hmm. you know previous incidents he had had with the KKK in Mississippi specifically, and so they did film in Illinois, but they they found a town called Sparta to film in, and so they just named the town Sparta, Mississippi, so they didn't have to change any of the signage. But yeah. um, there is the one scene where they're driving to the Mr. Endicott, who's sort of uh, the town rival of the, you know, the captain of industry of the man that um, was murdered. And obviously you get the very kind of literal representation of northern and southern economies and that Endicott owns a cotton plantation. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, Corbett, the or Colbert's, what was his name? Was it Colbert or Corbett? I can't remember the guy that Col- died. Colbert. Colbert. Colbert okay, yeah. uh, Mr. Colbert was just opening up, um, a, basically a tractor factory to build tractors and machinery, and you know that. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, they had to film the cotton plantation scenes, and that I mean, that was kind of powerful stuff too, just to even see like it yeah. looked like this is a real deal cotton field, and these are people picking cotton, and uh, they did they shot that in Tennessee, and apparently. You know, Poitier was extremely nervous and slept with a gun under his pillow and did, in fact, receive threats um, from locals. Mm-hmm. And they cut the filming a little short to get back up to the to the safety of Illinois. That that it's a great shot. I mean, I think it's only a couple shots there where you see the extent of the the plantation, and uh, you have that scene in the car where. You know, I, I think Gillespie is basically just trying to cut the tension by saying. Well, none of that for you, huh, Tibbs, you know, Virgil? And, like, Poitier yeah. just cuts glass, just looks through him, and, like, it's great. And I was like, that's a, I mean, it's, that's a great line, and then that's all you need, you know? Yeah. You did want some sort of commentary on that, you know, because, like, especially yeah. now, like, looking back, on, you know, as the audience we are now, like, you're driving through a cotton field with a black man in a white car in the 60s, like, you got to say something. <laughs> so, great little yeah. sequence. I'm sorry he was threatened and felt he had to sleep with a gun under his pillow. Jesus yeah. Christ, but um they got the shot. No, they, they they yeah, they said they were followed quite a bit in Tennessee. They had people uh driving circles in their uh hotel or their the the motel, like the only motel in town that would take them because they had an integrated national policy that was Holiday Inn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean just imagine <laughs> trying to make a movie under that under those conditions. This is going to sound naive, but I'm still a little surprised by that just because you feel like the the specter of like they're making a movie in our town, like you know, like right. you feel like there would be some of that kind of like this is amazing, like this is great. Come on yeah. in, like you know, people just watching and taking pictures and like you know, it doesn't matter like you know, you feel like if anybody's going to get a pass, it would be Sidney Poitier, right? Um, right. You know, having a movie star. But no, I guess not. And that's that really speaks volumes. It does. It yeah. speaks horrible, horrible volumes. <laughs> Loud, disgusting volumes. Indeed.
So I have a question for you about something that happened in the movie. Okay. This this was one thing I was confused by. So it's it's in the latter half. It's after the chase. Virgil ha- is having Sam drive him around town to drive the exact route that he drove the night yep. that they found Colbert. Gillespie's with them in the car and they're driving. There's one point. So you see at the beginning, you see Sam driving this route by himself. Mm-hmm. And a part of the route is he parks out in front of this girl's house who is known to traipse around in the nude with the lights on. Who we find out later in the movie is 16. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, I was a little, she's a, she's a little a disappointed when I heard young. that because you see yeah. her like in the opening of the movie, like, oh, wow, there's this really beautiful naked woman walking around. Yeah. There's no actual, you, you don't see any of then the Then you bits. can't even enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, I feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so when, uh, when Virgil has him drive around, he turns left before he goes by the girl's house. And Virgil immediately, you know, picks up on that, you know, why did you change your route? And yep. Sam gets mad and, uh, you know, Virgil sort of explains, you know, that he's caught him in a lie. And then Virgil says something like, good night, gentlemen, gets out of the car and just walks off into the night. Sean, where was he going? I thought they were back at the house that he's staying at. Oh. He's staying with the... Oh, uh, wow. The local okay. guy and his family. Oh, I didn't get that at all. Okay. Because I think M- it was after so. that there was a scene where he's in the rocking chair and that guy is on the couch and they're just like sharing like a drink late at night. Yeah. I, might, I mean, I might well, not have in that right, may not have that in the right order. Well, I'll say because that was Gillespie's house, I thought. Yeah, that was Gillespie's house. Oh, yeah. When, he did when go they're to Gillespie's both in the house. at one point. Yeah. But remember, there was that family. That he there was the family the early on yeah. who, who give him the car. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe he just, just got it. There has to be something. Because I could have sworn. It just seemed like they were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And like, and he was kind of, he kind of did it for effect. But I, when he's walking away, I was like, where is he going? And then the next scene, <laughs> you know, Gillespie has decided that Sam is guilty. He wasn't taken back to the diner, was he? Or his car was? No. I, I mean, I, I could have sworn they stopped no, on the road that he just that. turned on. So... Yeah. If any listeners out there check the movie out, please let us know. Maybe there was a little something cut out. Maybe so. You know, that's an interesting thing uh, because there were a couple of cuts that seemed very tight, that seemed to the point of of, of cutting off something. Like there's one that, that kind of cuts off something Gillespie's about to say. There's another one in the bank that ends really strangely. And I was trying to figure out, you know, is it or is, was this just maybe because of the limitations of the budget and... Like these are just kind of the signs of the fact that they they couldn't get tons of coverage. Like the one scene in the bank is just one shot the entire time. You know, it's, it's Gillespie checking up to see you know if, if oh, anybody yeah. deposited a huge deposit or something, <laughs> and it ends with the with the <laughs> with banker. the side shot of the bank guy just like make sure I get that letter cut. And it's like wait whoa whoa, whoa what just happened and you're just in this whole it, it just kind of uh kind of odd there. Well, you know how Ashby did win an Oscar for editing this movie. So oh yeah, uh, I mean I mean, I mean it was brilliant. It but, uh, <laughs> wow, he did he did win an Oscar for it. Yeah, maybe I need to maybe I need to maybe I need to do more uh, you know shortcuts on the end of lines. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, the movie resolves and we find out that the, um, ah, what the heck was that guy's name? Henshaw, Habshaw, something Shaw? Yes, Ralph Henshaw. (laughs) Henshaw, the creepy dude at the diner, in fact. The only one in town who really looks like he probably just killed somebody. 
From the from the moment you see him, he's trying to kill flies. Yeah, no, Scott Herring wasn't. I mean, uh, Scott Wilson, the uh, the original guy that they picked up running on the bridge, it's a great sequence. You know, yeah. he he wasn't exactly the going to show up at the country club um, kind of guy. Well, I, I guess I would just say this about Ralph Henshaw is if you you had to cast a play and you didn't know what the play was going to be yet, and he walked in, you'd say he's the Undertaker. <laughs> You know yes. what I mean? Like if you're doing Psycho on stage, he's playing Norman Bates. Yeah, right, right. for sure. But anyway, um, yeah. he, he won that role hand down. Okay, right. so the night of Sam is at the diner around two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Henshaw is very, very weird, but his normal weirdness. So we find out by the end of this movie when he confesses to having robbed and killed Mr. Colbert by saying. I did it. I needed the money to pay for an abortion, which we can talk about if you want to uh, later. But uh, I didn't mean to kill him. Right. So that, according to the time of death that was established, happened around 1230, half hour past midnight, right? Fair enough, yeah. So, Craig, if if he did that, he, he killed the guy, he dropped him off the body down on Main Street, goes back to work. And is just kind of acting like his normal weird self. Do you think he means means it when he says he didn't mean to kill Mr. Colbert, or is this guy actually just kind of like a psychopath? It's a good question. That really is a very good question, right? Sean. I didn't even think about that because he doesn't ever in the story seem at all bothered by the fact that he just killed somebody. No. Even when he confesses, he's like, meh. This is what happens when you listen to Serial and watch the Jinx and how to make a murderer. He's asking these questions. Yeah. Because he's a perfectly suitable, I mean, despite maybe being a little bit obvious. Sure. uh, He's a villain for the story, I think. You know? Yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of buy his story. I kind of did too. And then I was thinking, I was like, wait a second. Okay. So if that happened, okay. But wait, when we saw him... That was only a few hours after he killed that guy then. And I was like, okay, would he be this weird of a dude after having just killed somebody? Yeah. <laughs> He's snapping flies and goes back to work and, and is uh, just... And I'm just smiling and yeah, joking was, around with Sam and... Yeah. yeah. A police officer, no less. Yeah. Right. He's just well, I mean, a murderer. <laughs> I, guess, I guess he would have to be some kind of a sociopath. I think so. To say, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this guy in the back of the head with like a rock. And I'm going to see, I'm going to take his money, and then I'm just going to tell people that it, it was just being mugged. That still takes kind of a, a big leap. Like, clearly he's not, like, like he, he's not someone, like, Harvey fits that description a little better. Because Harvey seems like he doesn't have a lot going on in his life. Yeah. Like, he seems more like the guy who might be in such a desperate place that he would do that. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I say sociopath, burgeoning serial killer, we're glad we caught him. And maybe... Maybe they actually are telling us more in the movie that he is a sociopath by saying, here's also a guy that knocked up a 16-year-old girl and oh, yeah. was basically insisting that she get it. Well, I don't know who was insisting that, they, that she get the abortion, but he certainly was going along with it to the point of getting the money by means yeah. of, of robbery and murder. So, right. uh, yeah, I guess we're just supposed to take away that he's a pretty bad guy all the way through. What did you do? You make of that like sort of ending there? Because I, in in some regards, I thought of like something like Chinatown, where you do mm-hmm. have sort of have a, a, like an intricate 
whodunit plot kind of thing that ends up being resolved through something that's sort of, I guess, sexually deviant, you know, that you might say in, you know, mm-hmm. in that case for sure, in Chinatown's case for sure. In this case, maybe it's a little less so, but it's still by the by the town's conception of it for sure, like mm-hmm. frowned upon and, and completely forbidden. You know, I, I don't know. Did you? <laughs> but it isn't isn't really kind of again like strongly interesting political thing to throw in there in this movie, which is already very politically charged. Yes, and I guess, and really, I, I don't know where abortion rights stood at the time necessarily. Yeah. Like, what was Roe v. Wade? It was after 1973. Yeah. So, so. I mean, certainly in Mississippi, it was not legal at the time, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, is it legal now? (laughs) I'm not sure. That's interesting. You know, I I, I was kind of thinking on that, too, just in terms of are there only three women characters? So it's Mm -hmm. uh, Lee Grant as as Colbert's wife, and then it's uh, um, Quentin Dean. As I Dolores she was great, Purdy, by the way. I liked. Her, yeah, she uh, was great. Man, she, she was, was so great. Like her her mad. little uh, yeah. lie about Sam yeah. was really interesting to watch, mm-hmm. and it made more sense later finding out that it wasn't true. Like like some like some of her delivery was kind of odd, and I was like, why is she smiling? Why is she laughing? And then later when it was yeah, kind of lie, I was like, oh okay. And then uh, Mama, yep, Mama, what was her name? Kaleba, yeah, Kaleba, Mrs. Bellamy. That yeah. lady that played Mama Kaliba, super small role, and you know she's basically mm-hmm. she was not the abortion doctor herself, basically, right? No, she was like the liaison. I think she was the front. But yeah, exactly. Of course she was, because the exact thing I was about to say was to that effect. When Virgil tells her that you know somebody got murdered, g- great reaction, man. I really like. Oh, she yeah. just like a step, like two steps backwards up against that shelf, and I was like, man, that's that's some strong supporting work there in a very small role. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stood out to me, and I thought, yeah, I thought she was good. I thought all the women in this movie were really good and very small, but interesting parts. Yeah. But actually, that plays right into what was my biggest beef with this movie, and it, it's very, very minor. But I do think it got slightly repetitive. And I don't know that I felt like, you know, he's going to the train station, he's going to the train station again. Like, that wasn't necessarily a thing of, you know, sometimes, yeah, you had to invent reasons for somebody to stay. I thought they handled that pretty well. But yeah. the flip side of that was then Chief Gillespie, in, on multiple occasions, was like, do I have to take you to the, do I have to put you on that train myself? To, to Virgil, like, you know, I, I think at least three times he said that. Yeah, And then I, I thought using the thing of locking up the wrong man I kind of thought that when it got to Sam, I was wanting a little something else from the plot. Because, yes. you, you know, you've already, they nabbed, they picked up Virgil. He's not the, obviously, he's not the murderer, and they established that pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. then they pick up Scott Wilson, the Harvey character, and figure out pretty quickly, but through interesting means, forensic means, mm-hmm. uh, that he is not the um the murderer and also i do think uh, we should point out great example of letting smart characters be smart like we've talked about in regards to that um the article about writing arrival i thought you know all that stuff with uh with virgil examining the body was was perfect for that yeah but then when the chief is like accusing sam <laughs> of murder just because he made a large deposit to me it felt like 
good God, has he learned nothing in the past like hour? Yeah. <laughs> also, you had Virgil thinking that Mr. Innicott was the guy that murdered Mr. Colbert, and he's ready to lock him up. You know, so it felt by the time it got to Sam, it felt like that's maybe one beat too many of that particular device. I, I made a note of that myself, uh, and I wrote down deciding Sam is guilty is the worst detective work ever. <laughs> and uh, I didn't go that uh, far uh, with it, but it was, it was pretty bad at that point. Yeah. Well, well, it was. It was just yeah. I mean, it, it seemed it seemed like like we'd made some some progress right? in the story, <laughs> and then Gillespie is here saying. Nope. You caught him in a lie, and he deposited a bunch of money, so he's the guy. And I'm just like, six hundred dollars. Yeah, it's like like any like a child could poke holes in that. Like, there's yeah. no you have nothing to to hang this guy on. But I gotta say, like that 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 is pretty much my list of beefs or issues. Yeah. Sometimes you look at some of these older movies, and you just sort of expect. You know that the pace is going to move differently, and and maybe mm-hmm. it's a little slower process. But I mean, this still felt really kind of cinematic in a way that things are today. I mean, not necessarily shots or even editing, but the pace mm-hmm. of it is strong. Like it's really good. Like it holds up as a thriller, I think, and 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 a mystery. And and it's and it's definitely a story that is big enough to be considered. Yeah, cinematic. Mm-hmm. Like there, there, there are enough big things happening in it that yeah, you you couldn't see it as a as a TV show, which it eventually became. And again, sure. I have questions about that. How do I you? Too. I it's, see it's the that, same yeah. two characters in the town. They had to change the setting. They had to. There's no way. I I think they're just in. I think they're just both in Sparta the whole time. Like every still I ever on saw on the TV that show? show. No way. Yeah, they're not like traveling the this nation. How? Like you look at any yeah. still, it's Carol O'Connor looks just like Rod Steiger. And, oh, see, and, I and, and Rollins, uh, uh, the other guy's name is Rollins. I can't remember his first name. But he, I mean, they just, they look like they're always in the same town. I don't know. I just assume they said it in a different place. No, you're right, though. Cases and adventures of the police forces in and around Sparta, Mississippi. So suddenly, yeah, Sparta just becomes a haven for crime and murder for like <laughs> eight seasons. <laughs> because when Colbert, Colbert, they find Colbert, they're like, like no one gets killed around here. Like this, like when I've never had Which a, would is there be something about, true, yeah. They don't even have a photographer for this kind of thing. Like the guy, that was kind of a great touch. Like the guy they have there is just like, I don't know, ex- seems to be excited just to be taking pictures. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, make sure you get everything, uh, you know. Yeah, eight seasons of that. That's interesting. I, I, I just assumed, <laughs> I just assumed it took place in like Philadelphia or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would obviously like completely change it. Well, we have some work to do then. We got to check out that. We do. Uh, so one. welcome to our new podcast, Never Heard of In the Heat of the Night, <laughs> all eight seasons. <laughs> well, I only have, I have two other bits of trivia. All right, let's, uh, let's see what you got. Scott Wilson, who played the Harvey character, we talked about in one of our mini episodes where I talked about having watched uh, In Cold Blood, the Richard Brooks movie. And That's right. I thought that was Scott Wilson's first role. I thought I had read that somewhere. He plays one of the two killers, um, yeah. if you're familiar with that uh, Truman Capote novel. Mm-hmm. And I read that actually Poitier was so impressed by Scott Wilson in In He the Night that he apparently called Richard Brooks and recommended him for the role in In Cold Blood and never told Scott Wilson that he had done that until much later. Oh, wow. 
pretty nice, right? Yeah. Pretty nice dude. And then Sterling Siliphant, our favorite name. Love it. Who, dear God, I don't know if you looked at his filmography, but Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure, I mean, a massive amount of stuff. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's show, he, I think, created The Naked City, that TV series, worked on Rawhide. But Craig, get this. Uh-oh. He co-wrote he co- Over the Top, the Stallone movie, the arm wrestling movie. Co-wrote? I mean, not co-wrote, he wrote it, yeah, sorry. Oh, I was going to say. Wow. I know. That you wouldn't think there's two people that did that, would you? He's done. Um, yeah, I was going to say, his <laughs> half must have been the good half. Yeah, it's amazing. But here's the connection why I think maybe he did this movie. Yeah. A- apparently, he was a very close friend and student of Bruce Lee's at one point in his life. So maybe he was really? like, well, if I can't make a martial arts movie, maybe this Stallone arm wrestling movie will like tap <laughs> as close as I will ever get to my dream. Yeah, that's my theory. I got to call in the Stallone to confirm that, but I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll call us after he listens to the episode. He'll leave a voicemail, and I won't be able to understand a word of it. So it'll be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then we just make up our own story. It's fine. Wouldn't you like to be friends with Bruce Lee? That'd be awesome to have on your. That would, yeah. Bio. Probably would have so solved cool. a lot of problems in my life, <laughs> which we won't get into right now. No. But again, I would recommend anyone who's interested, uh, obviously watch the movie and definitely get Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris because there's so much more to this movie and, and these other movies uh, that, were, that were nominated that year. So what were uh, the other movies? I know you said Dr. Doolittle was one. Mm-hmm. Dr. Doolittle was uh, Bonnie and Clyde, oh my The gosh. Graduate, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner Yeah, were the other ones. So he was, he, yeah, so he was up against himself that year. Yeah. Which is which is kind of nuts, and they of course they get into that. I mean, there's man. I mean, it, like side note, the story of of Warren Beatty going around trying to get Bonnie and Clyde done, and the guys who originally wrote it, and like all that stuff is so great. And the Graduate, awesome. there's so many good stories. I can't recommend it enough. Mark Harris will send me my residuals for yeah. recommending it. I'm sure. Well, um, I'm. You know what? I'm super glad we watched this even more now because. I suspect, yeah, I don't know, who knows what the moves were at the time, but maybe if you're looking at that list, then I think your natural inclination, if you're a film fan at all, is, is to put The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde certainly on a pedestal above In the Heat of the Night, um, whether you've Generally, seen, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and here we are, we hadn't actually seen this movie, and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, maybe it won't be quite remembered in that regard, but it, it's it's damn good. Like it it holds yeah. its own. So uh, you know that happens every now and then. You know, Dances sure. with Wolves and Goodfellas and like some of these movies that end up winning. You know, over time get overshadowed by some of the other ones that were nominated and maybe you know for good reason in a lot of cases. But um, yeah, I don't think that's quite the case here. I think this one's it deserved that Oscar. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it it definitely. Yeah. It it came out at at an amazing time for a movie like that to come out. Mm-hmm. Th- that subject matter. I mean, that that had to hit hard. Uh, so, yeah, it totally totally deserved it. And now you will sing the Ray Charles song. It, okay. Hold on. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> this will just only take me another hour. I I think I've just fried my vocals. Tonight, yeah. while we were talking. Otherwise, I totally would. 
I meant to look at the lyrics of that song because, like, the whole time I was hearing, I was like, "This just—it sounds like he's talking about sex." But then I did read that they wrote the the song for the film, so I'm guessing that's not the case. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm I'm feeling motherless somehow. Stars with evil eyes stare from the sky. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a dark song. But I mean, even yeah. if it was about sex. I mean, so was the movie, really. Yeah, and in some ways, you could you could easily make that argument. Yeah. So I guess I could sell my soul for just a little light in the heat of the night. Let's wrap this up. I think, you know, it's a great movie. Go watch it. Come join us at neverheardpodcast.com and all our social links and Mm. say hello. We are going to do a movie like this, I think, periodically this year, along with all the other cool stuff we're going to do. And then we'll be back next week with a mini episode. If you haven't listened to one of those yet, those tend to be shorter and not focused on any one specific movie, but typically news or just something that we're kind of like familiar with. Check that out, and then we'll probably let you know what movie we're going to do next in that one. That sounds about right, Sean. Well, uh, Happy New Year yet again. Yeah. And may all your dreams be podcast dreams. I don't know. I don't know. I'll come up with a good tag sometime this year. I think you just did. Starting strong. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.